Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. A number of years ago, uh, in one of our trips to Israel, a Jewish man took Rosemary and me, just the two of us, to the Alon Marais, the place where Abraham looked across and God said, I give you this land. And then he told me this sobering story, jolting story. He says, I bring evangelical college students. That's an Orthodox Jew speaking. He says, I bring evangelical college students to this site. And I say, according to the Bible, this is where Abrams stood. And he looked across and God says, I'm giving to you and your descendants this land. And the evangelical college students, this man said, go, but wait, what about international law? I said to him, sir, would you repeat? I want to make sure I understood you. And he repeated the story. And the conclusion was these so-called evangelical Bible-believing college students have been so brainwashed. They don't care about the scripture. They blew off the scripture. And then they bought into a cultural myth that's completely a fallacy. That according to international law, as they saw it, and have been brainwashed, this doesn't belong to Israel. This is happening in our own evangelical colleges. That's one story. Park that one. You go to the next, and we're going to go to our guest. I had the privilege of going to The Hague. The Hague is a city, and in that city is the International Court of Justice. Sort of picture it like it's part of the United Nations, sort of like the Supreme Court of the world. It's where nations come to resolve their problems among the, before the 15 judges there. And there's the International Criminal Court there. There's a lot in The Hague of international uh, consequence. Now, we all know that according to Isaiah 2 and Micah 2, that the, 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 the law comes forth from Zion. We all get that from Jerusalem as the word of the Lord. But this place at The Hague uh, feels like the word, the word comes forth from them. Well, while we were there, I met a wonderful young attorney. I say young. Everybody's young compared to me. Andrew Tucker. And Andrew Tucker, uh, as we were there, we had the privilege of going into the International Court of Justice, which is hard to do about, I don't know, half a dozen of us got to go in. And we met outside then afterwards, and he handed out this wonderful little book, The Hague Statement of Jurist of the Israel-Palestine Conflict. Why that was significant to me is we had had the privilege of meeting with the ambassador uh, from Israel to uh, The Hague. And we had the privilege of meeting with the attorneys uh, in, the, in, the, in the embassy who argued the case for Israel before the, the Supreme Court, the International Court of Justice, as charges are brought against them every day. You're aware in the United Nations in New York City, more resolutions are brought against Israel than the other 92 nations combined. False manufactured resolutions brought against them by places like North Korea, Iran, communist China, Russia, et cetera. So our guest today is going to really address that, uh, Andrew Tucker. He's an attorney. He lives in The Hague. He's willing to stay up at a pretty late hour uh, to, to do this call. We're so appreciative. Andrew, I cannot tell you what a joy it is to be with you again, uh, reconnect with you, and to have you on. Thank you uh, for being on our Zoom call today. Where you're, you're muted right now. You see, there we go. I'm, I'm still having, it's been a while. I haven't been on Zoom. We got so used to not being on Zoom for a while, and now here we are. So, Jim, it's great to be with you. Thank you. I'm just going to throw it wide open to you and turn you loose. All right, look at your book here. By, by the way, is this book, this book is so good. It's not a big book, but it's well thought out. Is this still available? Yeah, it is, Jim. Uh, in fact, it's, you can download it uh, on our website. Um, digitally, we've got it in about 10 different languages. Let's, let's get that right now, Dennis, before we go further. How, what's your website? So www.think.info, and that's T-H-I-N-C dot info. And THINK must stand, it must be an acronym for something? Yeah, that stands for the Hague Initiative for International Cooperation. So THINK with a C dot info. Info. And, and where do they go to download this book on there? Uh, I think if you look under our publications, you will find um, 
you'll have to look around at publications. It's there somewhere under our reports. Okay. Um, but Jim, what I can do, I don't know if you want to, uh, we have a, you can put in the chat box, I can cut and paste a link. Well, you give, you've given the website and that helps us out there. And I want to encourage everybody. It's only, it's a very small book. Uh, it's only about 40 pages or something. I'm not sure what it is, 50, 50 pages. Yeah. But it's superb. And what we want to equip you with today with how to answer this question, uh, be people saying, well, Israel doesn't have a legal right to that land by international law. That's what you need to be prepared for. And if, if that's not a struggle with you, let me tell you, your children or your grandchildren are being told that Israel doesn't have a right to the land. So let's just turn it loose to you, uh, uh, Andrew, to talk about the biblical background and flow right into the legal. And Mario's going to have some questions for you on this in a little bit. Go for it. Super. Okay, Jim. Um, well, thank you, everybody. And um, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. I understand you're all over many different parts of, of the nation. So I'm sitting here in the Netherlands, tiny little country in, in Europe, um, sort of squeezed in between Germany and Belgium um, and um, on the North Sea. And The Hague, as Jim said, is the capital. So actually, it's not the capital of the Netherlands. Amsterdam is the capital, but it is uh, the, the seat of parliament uh, of the Netherlands. And uh, most importantly, as Jim said, it is the it is the home to many international institutions. Uh, and the two most important of those really for our purposes are the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, and the International Criminal Court, uh, which is a very different institution, the ICC, which is also in The Hague um, and has only been in existence for 20 years. But um, this whole area of international criminal law, I'll come back to in a moment because it's really changed the landscape of international law, revolutionized it really. You're all aware of the tribunals for Rwanda and for former Yugoslavia and that sort of thing. Well, they created an international criminal court 20 years ago um, to really catch all the worst war criminals in the world and bring them to justice. It's a kind of a catch-all court where um, they don't need specific jurisdiction, but if something really terrible happens uh, anywhere around the world, the court uh, potentially has jurisdiction to go after war criminals and crimes against humanity uh, and those who commit uh, other atrocities. Now, that's, that's the kind of scenario we're working in with, with, with Israel. Israel has been placed internationally, dip diplomatically, now for many people uh, as, as if it were the worst war criminal uh, in the world, you know, equal to Putin attacking Ukraine. We have Israel attacking the Palestinians. I'll come back to that, um, but just to give you a little bit of, of the setting. So I grew up in Australia. I'm an Australian, you probably hear that in my accent. Um, and I emigrated to Europe in my mid-20s. I think the Lord always gave me a passion for, for Europe, for international affairs and international law. I studied at Oxford. I, I worked in London. And as things happen, I got a bit sidetracked. I met a beautiful woman. And she misled me completely. And I ended up in the Netherlands. I almost didn't know where it was. And here I am 30 years later. Jim, I'm not as young as you think I am, um, but uh, I thank you for your, for your compliment. Um, and having worked in, in law, um, I, I, to be honest, I didn't know an awful lot about Israel until uh, I, I was really called out of legal practice to work for a Christian ministry called Christians for Israel, which has its international head office in the Netherlands. And my role was to be an international director setting up um, chapters and affiliates in partnerships in different countries around the world. And it gave me the privilege of um, really getting to know Christians in many, many different denominations in many different countries and to see the richness and diversity of the body of Christ. Um, and, and, you know, and I was... I'm encouraged, and I think it's important to emphasize it, that the Lord is doing 
a work of restoration and cleansing in his bride, in his body, preparing us for his return. Uh, and I think if we keep that focus, it's, it's terribly important that I believe that um, the Lord is doing this work and he's doing the same work with Israel. He is restoring the Jewish people. We're not. Christians have been involved over the last 100 to 150 years, but we've just been instruments. Um, and I feel it's, it's terribly important to give God the honour and the respect and also the, um, the freedom to move as he only knows how is, is right. And I'll, I'll explain why I think that's important when we, when we come to law, because this whole conflict, this whole issue is really not about law. It's not about legal issues. It won't be resolved by international law. It won't be resolved by any international legal tribunals. Uh, but law has become a weapon, as it were, and I think, Jim, you put it well, it's become a kind of a weapon in the hands of the enemies of the God of Israel. So we're talking about spiritual warfare here. We're talking about a spiritual battle of the end times when God is doing a work in the bride of Christ. He's doing a work in his people, Israel, to whom he is still faithful in a covenant relationship. And he's doing a work in the nations. God has a purpose with the nations as well. Um, and, and we know that it's a, it's a purpose of blessing. We read in the last verses of the book of Revelation of that great vision of the, the coming kingdom, you know, of glory, where there's the river of life. And along the river are the trees and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. There's something mysterious about God's creation of nations uh, right back to Genesis when uh, after the flood, the three sons of Noah uh, developed into the 70 nations. Now, we don't have time to explore that, but this is very much part of the story of Israel because God created Israel not as just one of the 70 nations, which he plucked out of Assembly, no, he created it by a miracle. The birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah was a miracle. They were too old to have children. And the Lord and, and, and Abraham took it upon himself, as you recall, to, uh, to sleep with Hagar, the servant of his wife, Sarah, and conceived, she conceived uh, Ishmael. And Abraham thought, well, I've fulfilled this promise of the Lord's to have a succeeding generation to whom this land uh, will be destined. And the Lord said, no, that's not my path. My path is through Isaac uh, and the covenant with Isaac uh, with, and, and Jacob, not with Ishmael. Um, so I think that demonstrates that God's path is often different from our, uh, what even in the best intentions we think is the right way for going. Now, um, so Israel is a miracle nation um, in the midst of nations. It's always been a miracle. And God has this unique relationship through his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which he's renewed many times. And it's developed into the covenants of the law and the covenant of the divinic covenant uh, through David and so forth. Uh, there are many aspects of, of the covenants but it's God's unique, special relationship with his people. Um, and it's deeply connected to the land. As Jim started, um, God promised the land that uh, he took Abraham to out of Babylon, what is now, uh, I suppose, Iraq, um, took him all the way to a land which he had no idea where he was going to. And God showed him this beautiful land of Canaan. And he said, I, I will give it to you. Now, um, it's God's land. It's always God's land. It will be God's land. It remains God's land. He, he gives it to, uh, the, the, to Abraham and his descendants. Um, 
not as like a transfer of title, but as a kind of, um, I, I would say a kind of a trust because they have a job to do in that land. They have a task to fulfill in that land and their, and their, their life in that land depends upon them fulfilling that task, which is to be a light to the nations, isn't it? To, to be the representation of God in the midst of the nations. Now we sometimes think that's the church's job, don't we? We are now called to be, well, yes, we are, but more importantly, it's still Israel's task to be a light to the nations. It remains their job. Um, I, I, belong, I belong to those people who believe that God is restoring Israel and he promised them the land because he will restore them to the land in order that the nations will learn the ways of the Lord. The, the law of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem, from Zion, because and when Israel, the Jewish people in their in entirety and fullness have been restored to Zion. That, that's the calling of Israel. And the church has a slightly different calling. It's to be a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly priesthood. And it will reign with Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, in a deeply close relationship with Israel over the nations. Now, I don't want to go down that track theologically. Uh, it's got to do with the millennium and so forth. Now, we might have differences of views about that. I, I don't want to go deeply into it, but I do think it's important that we recognize that God has a deep purpose here in restoring the nations and his the glory of his name on earth that that's why israel was called that's why israel he said he will bring restore his people to israel and many verses of prophecy in the old testament just look for example at ezekiel 36 through to 38 especially 36 37 uh, but isaiah zechariah so many of the prophets spoke about the lord said I will bring my people home from the four corners of the earth, the north, the south, the east, and the west. Now, this was not the return after the Babylon exile because they were not returned from the north, the south, the east, and the west after the Babylonian exile, nor have they even returned at all from the Assyrian exile of the 10 tribes. We don't even know where most of the 10 tribes are. Uh, okay, so... There's a much bigger work to be done still of the Lord bringing the fullness of the descendants of Jacob back to the land. And, and we are only seeing, I think, a little bit of that, the tip of the iceberg in the restoration over the last 100 years, 150 years of the Jewish people to the land that became known as Palestine. And we know it as Judea and Samaria. Um, so it's a big work and, and we're, just, we're just in a way at the beginning of it. Um, but it's a work of spiritual restoration. Uh, the, 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 this I, I find one of the fascinating things about it is, is that God says, uh, I think, I, I believe it's fairly clear in, in the Old Testament that There'll be a physical restoration uh, followed by a spiritual restoration of the Jewish people. Okay, so they're coming back in blindness, many of them. It's a very natural, it's a work of the natural, not of the spiritual. Um, you know, Zionism was a, basically a secular movement in the 19th century, going into the 20th century. Many Jews who come back to Israel uh, are secular. Um, most of them, as we know, don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Um, so many Christians struggle with that and they think, well, what, how can we allow or even support the Jewish people coming home if they're not believing in Jesus? But God said, no, I'm doing a mysterious work with my people uh, and it's a journey I'm taking them on to bring them to the land, settle them in the land, in order that my Holy Spirit will be poured out uh, upon them. Now, 
if we read Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, um, it speaks of the end time climactic confrontation between Israel and the nations. There will be various alliances of nations which will go up against Jerusalem, particularly Jerusalem is the very center of all of this. And Jim, you were quite right to speak of Mount Moriah because that's the Temple Mount, which I think is the core of this conflict. And, and, and we'll see everything, I think, focusing in on the Temple Mount. Um, and we'll see nations going up. We're already seeing them going up against Jerusalem in the United Nations. But we'll probably see a day when they'll go up militarily. They will form military alliances to... Now, uh, we have Ezekiel 38, uh, Gog and Magog uh, crisis. Now, there are various things, um, but the big picture is that there's a, there's a confrontation between the work God is doing through his people, Israel, and the nations. And I see it as a, a testing time for the nations, also a testing time for the church. Do we align ourselves with God's purposes or do we choose our own? It's really the Tower of Babylon all over. Uh, the Tower of Babylon was built in order to reach up into the heavens to create a man-made kingdom, as it were. We don't need God. We, we create our own temples. We create our own structures and institutions. Uh, and I believe we're entering to that time of history when this man-made construction, and I think the United Nations is the, the key institution we're talking about, but there are many, the European Union, uh, well-meant, well-intentioned institutions, very well-intentioned, and there are many good things about them, but they're built without God. And we have to, uh, in a sense, sometimes put our own understanding and, and reasoning to one side and, and attach ourselves to the, the prophetic word of God and say, God, you are doing this. We don't understand it fully. We can't comprehend it. But like Ruth, I think, who, you know, attached herself to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and traveled with her from Bethlehem to Jerusalem without knowing why she was doing it or where she was going. But she said, your land is my land. Your God is my God. And, and I believe that that's the calling of the church today. One, one of the callings of the church is to align ourselves with with Naomi, with God, who's coming home to, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, uh, there's a lot to be said uh, about all of this. Um, and I'll come to international law in a moment. Um, but I think another aspect, I, I think just to draw out is what we know, we've been taught a lot about the spirit of the end times the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, I believe Israel, the restoration of Israel is a sign of the times. It's the fig tree, which is growing its leaves and, and it will grow fruit again. Fig tree that Jesus cursed. You'll recall when he went up to Jerusalem in that last week of his life and he saw the fig tree, which was not bearing fruit. And he said, you will be cursed for a period, for a time, for a season. Uh, that's the fig tree which is growing to life again because God is, is restoring it. Um, so if Israel is a sign to the church, it's a sign to the nations. Um, another sign is the lawlessness and the chaos and the confusion in the world. Um, and I'm sure, like me, you, when we look at what's going on in the world, we see increasing chaos, don't we? We see increasing confusion, uncertainty, problems which go beyond our comprehension that cannot be solved, humanly speaking. I think fear is a big element. Fear has got into the hearts of men because they don't know any solution. They've lost sense of God's purpose and perspective. Um, 
in, in, in 2 Timothy 3, the, the lack of love, uh, which he speaks about in the, the, the times of the lawlessness of the end times. We have 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, talking about the man of, of lawlessness. Now, that's a good bridge for me to talk about law. If we're living in a time of lawlessness, I think we're also living in a generation where we've never seen as many laws as we have today. United States, it's certainly the case here in the Netherlands and Australia where I come from, the European Union, you know, we're suffocating from the laws which the legislatures are putting in place. Um, and international law, again, has, has mushroomed, exploded over the last 50 years become an enormously complex and complicated set of rules, institutions, all because we're trying to regulate and organize our lives. And we think law is the way that we're going to solve all, as, all these problems. Well, we know that it's only when the hearts of men and women are changed, the true change can, can take place. So I think this, this, this interesting uh, lawlessness, of course, is not about the lack of laws, human laws. It's about a lack of God's law in society, lack of God's law. Um, we've, lost, we've lost our connection with the Torah. We've lost our connection with God's prophetic word. We've lost our connection with God's covenants. That's the law that... We are now free, freed ourselves from as, as the world. Um, and I think that's the context within which to think about international law. And so with your permission, just let me speak a little bit about law. Sorry, Jim, I'm probably rabbiting on a bit too much here, but um, I think it's important to understand what, what law is and what it is not. Uh, and I share your concern, Jim, about Christians who look to international law as if that is going to provide us with some guidance, uh, as if it's going to tell us the truth. Well, we don't, as Christians, look to, of course, we obey the law. We, we are observant to the law. We don't rebel. We've been taught, I think, to... Um, to honour governments, we've been taught to respect those in authority. But we do not expect that human laws will bring salvation, will bring eternal justice. They will not bring God's kingdom. Only God's law will, will do that. International law is the law of nations. It's the law made by nations, for nations. Uh, it's a very European concept. It came out of the 17th century, the modern idea of, of international law. Of course, the Greeks and the Romans also had their form of international law. But modern international law is a very Western um, enlightenment concept where nations agree amongst themselves uh, about how they will relate to each other. And when it started, international law was very much about respecting the sovereignty of each other. Um, it's a principle we still see in international law of the principle of the sovereign equality of states. You'll see that in the UN Charter, chapter uh, section two, article two. Uh, and the principles of the charter are built on the sovereign equality of states. Now, so far, so good. That all worked fairly well. Uh, as long as you had a limited number of like-minded or more or less like-minded states, which you had in more or less until the end of the 19th century, civilized or so-called civilized nations who could agree with each other to respect each other's sovereignty. That's the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, that's the principle there that we don't interfere in each other's affairs, but we do agree on certain principles um, about, you know, the use of international waterways and the ocean. We'll agree not to attack each other. We'll agree on some 
um, fundamental things. Even the abolition of slavery, for example, came out of that system because all civilized nations came to the realization slavery is a bad thing. Okay. But then in the First World War, everything changed. And we moved from a world of empires into a world of nation states. And I think the last hundred years has been a story of nation states coming into existence. There are now almost 200 members of the United Nations. Whereas 100 years ago, there were less than 50 members of the League of Nations. So it's quadrupled and there are many more. Uh, there are many people groups. There are many nations that are not states, but are seeking to be states. Think of the Kurds and many other people groups in the Middle East. And of course, the Jewish people have been one of them. So this thing called international law is, is a, is a man-made creation. And it, and it stands or falls on the, uh, the trust and the, 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 the intentions of states themselves. And the problem in the United Nations today is that we have a majority of states who do not share Western values. They do not share, and many are deeply opposed to Judeo-Christian values. And sadly, many of them are former Christian countries. You know, we have countries in Europe that are taking a terrible position on Israel and the Jewish people because they've, I think, uh, they've, they've lost their perspective from their Judeo-Christian origins. Um, so international law is not by definition a good thing. International laws are not by definition going to work in practice. It only works... Um, if the intentions of those who use it are, are good. Um, and we've come to the situation since the Second World War where we've created a system which um, I, th I think it's fair to say it's been hijacked by the enemies of freedom. The United Nations was set up in 1945 uh, really in the ashes of the Holocaust, the Shoah, at the end of the Second World War, the worst, most tragic uh, conflict in the history of man. Tens and tens of millions of people were killed. And so the idea was to create this system which would ensure world peace and security. And we've ended up with a system which is doing pretty much the opposite. There's nothing the United Nations can do to guarantee peace and security and yet everybody looks to it as being the savior because it's the only thing we've got and we keep creating these bodies and institutions and tribunals to uh, solve these problems um, but the deepest problem with the UN is the fact that the member states and every member state of the UN has one vote so if they're problematic they can do whatever they want and we get these resolutions that Jim referred to time and again, year after year, month after month, resolving to condemn and criticize Israel and the Jewish people. And it's all happened since really the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, I go into this in great detail. We've written a book called Israel on Trial. Uh, and it tells the story about how law has become misused over the last 50 years to delegitimize the state of Israel. It's called lawfare. It's the use of law to attack uh, an, a member state or any, or any entity. And in this case, we see lawfare in, in, in other different contexts. But in this context, we're talking about the use of the legal system um, the use of laws to undermine and ultimately to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. I think that's what's happening. Uh, it's the Islamic world or members of the Islamic world uh, and the Arab world allied with the non-aligned movement, the countries of South America, Africa over the decades, uh, allied with the Soviet Union have enabled these 
majorities to form and they still have a majority even though we don't have a Soviet Union anymore um, and the whole world structure is different nevertheless there's always a majority of states which are willing to condemn Israel and the Jewish people now how do they do that well they use the language and the laws themselves so one of them is the concept of statehood Now, the whole system was built on the idea of states and the sovereignty of states, as I mentioned. But today, if you talk to international lawyers, they will even question the idea of states at all. They'll say, we don't want sovereign states anymore. Sovereign states have been the cause of all the problems in the world. We want civil society. We want NGOs. We want uh, rebel groups. We want people groups to have power. So there's something deeply problematic from a philosophical perspective, from a spiritual perspective, about the undermining of the idea of nation states. And I think that's one of the reasons why many people have a problem with Israel is because Israel is a very successful, determined nation state. And people don't like it. They certainly don't like it when the Jewish people are in control of that nation state. Uh, so there's that dynamic uh, going on. The concept of state, at the same time, they'll say, well, the Palestinians are states. Um, so it, it's, it's not very logical, um, but it has a certain kind of authenticity to it. It has a kind of appeal to say, well, these Palestinians who've been oppressed for so long, we should give them what everybody else has, and that is statehood. Even though we don't like the idea of states, we think they should have it. So the idea of statehood. Another one is um, the concept of territorial sovereignty. And now let me focus on that for one moment, because it's important when we talk about the land and ownership of the land. Now, biblically, as we've as we've seen, God has promised this land for the Jewish people. Now, the land which Israel, the Jewish people, with, by the way, the strangers in the land, it will, it's not just the Jewish people, but God honors and respects the strangers in the land as well, who in their turn must respect the Jewish people. They will govern a land that's much bigger than current day Israel. It's much bigger than Judea and Samaria. It's going to extend all the way up to the Euphrates and all the way in the north and all the way to the Nile in the west. So we're only seeing just a little bit of this restoration of, of the land at the moment. Um, but it is God's land. Now, from a legal perspective, um, I think it's important to understand that states do not own territory. The idea of sovereignty in international law is not quite the same as the idea of land ownership as we know it in private law. I mean, I own a house, at least the bank owns it, but uh, I, I own a house, I, I purchased it, I have freehold title to that property and I can defend and assert that title. Now, um, I can also sell it. I can sell that land. Well, in international law, we have a concept of territorial sovereignty. Uh, so it basically it, sovereignty or territory, the, the control and sovereignty over territory is a function of statehood. And statehood is um, evidenced by control and sovereignty over territory. So if you, in order to be a state, you must have a government, you must have a people, and you must have territory. But you don't actually own that territory. It's the fact of controlling it and governing it and exercising authority over it that is evidence that you are a sovereign. And then by the same token, the land that you govern and 
have authority over is the territory of the state. Okay. So the question arises then, what is the territory of the state of Israel and who decides? There's a very complex area of law. I could give you a, I could give you a day's lecture on this. There are many different opinions. Lawyers will argue about this. Um, but I believe the key, and I think this is one of the key points to bring across today, is the what happened after the First World War when the League of Nations, the nations at the time, approved the mandate for Palestine, building on the Balfour Declaration, which had been issued by Britain in 1917, before the end of the war. And as you'll call, the United States joined the war uh, towards the end and under the influence of Woodrow Wilson, the concept of self-determination of peoples was seen to be paramount. And because the Turkish Ottoman Empire collapsed, the allied powers were faced with the question, what do we do with the territories of the former Ottoman and German empires? So that's the middle, many, much of the Middle East, it's large parts of Africa, even right through to the Pacific, where there were German uh, colonies. And they invented this idea of a mandate. And a mandate was a recognition by the world community that peoples, the peoples of the land should become independent. Uh, and so a series of mandates were created for different territories and therefore the Middle East, there were uh, three of them. Very important. One of the mandate for Mesopotamia became the state of Iraq. The mandate for Syria and Lebanon has become the modern republics of Syria and Lebanon. And the mandate for Palestine was intended to become the homeland for the Jewish people. It was unique because it recognized a particular people as being uniquely connected to the land. And it's written in the mandate. It's the most unique document of international law. It's a treaty to which governments, your government, my government committed themselves in 1922, exactly hundred years ago, to promise to enable the Jewish people to reestablish, not establish, but reestablish their homeland in Palestine. That document, in my view, is the foundation stone for Israel's territorial sovereignty when it was created in 1948, 30 years later. Now, unfortunately, in 1948, the world was in chaos and confusion. Israel was in a conflict. The Arab states attacked. So nobody was thinking about nice legal theories or principles. They were just thinking about defending themselves and getting through the war. And Israel entered into armistice agreements with Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and Saudi Arabia, um, who had attacked it, who had initiated war against it. And that created this division between what we now know as the West Bank and Israel. It all came out of conflict. Now, conflicts don't create legal territorial rights anymore. So the territorial rights, we have to go back before the creation of the state of Israel. Um, and in my view, that's the mandate for Palestine, which when Israel was established in 1948, as a matter of law, the territory of the mandate became, legally speaking, even though they didn't have control over it, all of it, became the territory of the state of Israel. That's a legal argument which a number of lawyers are putting forward today. It's not a popular one, I must say amongst international lawyers, because most international lawyers are very left-wing. Um, they're not at all in favor of Israel having sovereignty over anything at all, let alone the West Bank or Jerusalem. So it's a minority view, but I believe it's a very sound one. Um, and it's called the principle of uti possidatus juris. It's a Latin word. 
Uti Posidatus Eurus. If you want to learn more, you have to purchase my book. That's all I can say. <laughs> now, if you Google it, you'll find lots of information. Uh, a very good scholar called Kontorovich, Eugene Kontorovich, American-Israeli. Um, he's at George Mason University in Washington. Um, he's written together with R.V. Bell, another leading Israeli lawyer, articles uh, along these lines. Now, so we have a legal dispute going on. At the end of the day, uh, there's no international lawyer really who can say this is the absolute truth because international law, there is no ultimate arbiter of international law. There's no, not even the International Court of Justice can make a binding ruling about Israel's territorial sovereignty um, unless Israel consents to it, which it never does and never will. The International Criminal Court also cannot because Israel is not a party to the criminal court statute. So there are a lot of tribunals and courts that would like to, a lot of people, that's what the UN tries to do. It makes these resolutions like Resolution 2334 of the Security Council, Obama's last resolution before Trump came into power, saying all settlements are illegal. Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians. The West Bank belongs to the Palestinians. Well, the Security Council has no power to make those decisions. They're not binding. That's a, that's a non-binding Security Council resolution. It's a political statement, not a legally binding document. General Assembly resolutions, non-binding, deeply political documents. Uh, politically very powerful, very persuasive, but not binding. So Israel, at the end of the day, has to stand on its own understanding of its own legal position. And then we come to a tricky question, and that is Israel does not always well understand its own legal position or defend it well. There's a lot of confusion, as you know, better than I do in Israel itself or differences of view from left to right, from secular to orthodox. Getting the Jewish people to agree on any one thing is difficult, let alone their own legal position on some of these things. That's why we've seen so much hesitation and I think obfuscation by different governments on this issue. They don't dare to touch it because they don't it's so politically sensitive in, in Israel. You know, Netanyahu promised to annex the settlements. He didn't do it. And we just had this book published by uh, Kushner now, which goes into all the, ram the things going on around the Trump peace plan and so forth. It's all politics. Um, legally speaking, I think Israel has a very good case. It doesn't always put it as strongly or as well as it could and I think should. Uh, but there are reasons for that. And I think our role, as far as we can, as Christian international lawyers, is to support Israel. We don't claim that international law will solve the problem, but we do think we have to stand for justice and truth. So we put the case as well as we can for Israel's right. Does Israel have a right? Does Israel have title to Judean Samaria? Well, as I say, states don't have title as such. They have sovereignty. I think on the principle of the mandate, Israel has a clear, strong, convincing, legal right to sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, including Jerusalem. In fact, I think Jerusalem is the strongest case because Israel applied, exercised full sovereignty over Jerusalem immediately after the Six-Day War. It claims it is part of the State of Israel, always has, since the Six-Day War. There's been no dispute. It doesn't always use the word sovereignty, but that's basically what it's done, is to treat Jerusalem as part of the, under, uh, of the, uh, it's the undivided capital of the State uh, of Israel. Uh, and there are very strong legal arguments as to why that is effective as opposed to any other nation in the world. Uh, West Bank is more tricky because of the Oslo Accords. Israel has it voluntarily entered into treaties with the PLO. In my view, a big mistake. 
And I think everybody realizes Oslo was a disaster, but they are binding treaties and they have given the PLO rights to territory in parts of Judea and Samaria. Now, what is the nature of those rights? They're not sovereignty rights. PLO does not have sovereignty. It can't, it's not a state. Palestinian Authority does not have sovereignty. It can't because it's not a state. Um, but it has something, it has some rights in the areas known as areas A uh, and B of the West Bank, 30% of, of the West Bank. What is contentious is area C, which is under Israeli control and the Palestinians claim that it belongs to them. And the European Union agrees with the Palestinians. The EU says, Palestinians have a right to statehood. They have a kind of sovereignty over Area C. Well, it's nonsense. Palestinians cannot have sovereignty yet, unless and until they become a state, which they're not. Palestine is not a state. It might want to be a state. Many would like it to be a state, but it does not have the characteristics, the criteria of statehood. It doesn't have a stable government that controls a territory and so forth. Now, big argument there. Uh, we've just seen proceedings in the International Criminal Court on that very issue. Is Palestine a state? And we've seen many different arguments put forward and the tribunal itself came out with a very unclear answer. It's sort of a state. It's a quasi-state. So we have a very, legally speaking, a very unclear, confusing situation. Um, and then we have the whole question of the law of belligerent occupation. Don't have time to go into it, but that's the law that some people say means that settlements are illegal because you can't transfer your population into occupied territory. Now, um, lawyers will talk, you know, until the Lord Jesus comes, I think, about the law of occupation and there'll never be consensus or unity on it but there is a majority of states who use that law to to say that settlements are illegal now i think that statement in itself is absurd because there's no law anyway even the geneva conventions do not say that settlements are illegal article 49.6 geneva convention says occupying powers cannot transfer their own population into occupied territory. That's, that's the provision that everything hangs on. So the big question is, is it occupied territory? Has Israel transferred its population in and so forth, so on. Now, most Jews living outside the Green Line are living there voluntarily. Yes, they get some support from the government, but the state did not move them into. The settlers are, and there are many different kinds of settlers, settlements. I think the word settlement is a, is a very unhelpful term in itself. We need to dig deeper. These are communities, people choosing to live and build prosperous businesses. Many of them working with Arab Palestinians to build lives and prosperity and, and wealth and, and, and beauty. Um, and we give them the name settlements, which makes it sound something negative. Um, so there, there's a lot of issues there. And, and the bottom line is international law does not provide a clear definitive answer on most of those issues. So uh, I, I think I'll wrap up there, um, Jim and Mario. And uh, I'm not sure I might have made things more confusing for you. But I, I think for me as an international lawyer working in this field, we have set up this organization, Think, to, to work in this area. Um, I don't do it and I don't think we do it from the perspective that there is a legal victory to be won. I don't think we're not going to change the United Nations. We will change a small number and there's an opportunity and, and it's important we keep doing that. 
changing the hearts and minds of leaders in nations. But the reality is that there are spiritual forces at work which are significant. Um, there is a legal fight to be done. There is a legal battle. We're doing it. It's important that it happens to defend Israel in the international arena, to fight against delegitimization, fight against lawfare, to stand up for the, the inherent right of the Jewish people to nationhood, to live as a people in the land. I think that's absolutely essential. And we will fight in the international institutions. We will work in the UN and the ICC and wherever else we can. The UN Human Rights Council is another forum where this is all happening in the Euro European Union and so forth. And I think we should do that until it's simply not possible anymore. Um, but it, it's a battle, you know, it's a battlefield and it's a battle for minds and the hearts and minds of people. And, I think it goes deeper than law. It's about a deep sense of justice. And at the end of the day, um, respecting God's sovereign way with the Jewish people. And, and the, the, the deep significance of this restoration of the Jewish people in the land which is a miracle that the 20th century um, has seen. I think it's the greatest miracle of the 20th century. So it's not a disaster. It's not the obstacle to peace. It's actually the key to world peace. And um, that, that's, I think, the message we need to be getting out to, to people. So thank you for your time. I'm sorry to have rambled on. Uh, I hope that's been helpful. Thank Andrew. Thank you. Uh, so much. It's quite remarkable. There was a number of times uh, I wanted to interrupt and say, wait a minute, take me down that trail further. I want to understand this better. Uh, you gave a, a phenomenal overview. Uh, because of the time, we're going to limit our questions a great deal because we got to get into a time of prayer here very quickly. Um, I'm going to, I'm going, you're, you're a scholar and you're a legal scholar. I'm going to, in a sense, summarize this in three to four or five sentences and see if I've got it correct or not. I'm going to make it, uh, I'm a simple layman to try to understand this, okay? <clears throat> um, I would go with this route. In 1948, I'm not going to go back before that except for San Remo or something, but in 1948, when, the, when, when Israel was reestablished, it was immediately in war, and when the end of that war came, there were boundaries that are now called the West Bank. And let me, if you're not oriented to Israel, let me just give you a quick, here's Jerusalem. Here is Samaria. Here is Judea down here. Samaria, Judea, in the middle of that sort of is Jerusalem. And then the issue, it's being divided, East Jerusalem. So the Arabs or Palestinians have tried to claim control over Judea, Samaria rather, Judea, and East Jerusalem. That's what they refer to as the West Bank, west side of the Jordan River. Don't ever use the term West Bank. Always call it by its biblical terms, Samaria and Judea. By the way, Samaria, is, when we go to Israel, that's actually my favorite part, is Samaria. There's so much, people don't go in there enough. They ought to go in there. When the war ended in 48, it wasn't a case of an all-out victory. It was just the battle stopped, and there's where the lines were. And they stuck like that. And in a sense, Jordan had control over most of that, uh, all that. But in 1967, now again, this is layman language here. When the war took place, then Israel took control of all of that. And that moment, they should have officially declared sovereignty over that area, in my opinion. They did not. So it remained in limbo. Israel controlled it. To this day, Bibi, whoever's the prime minister at a given time, is not over Samaria and Judea. It's the military of Israel that has oversight over it, which makes it a very complicated piece of land. And then, as, as he's indicated, it's divided into A, B, and C. That was done thanks to Bill Clinton and the Oslo Accords and, well, some others besides him. But that was great. So it got chopped up and even more complex. 
Now, having said all that, in just a, a couple years ago, we were this close, this close. Netanyahu was this close, and 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 Donald Trump to officially, it's not annexation because they weren't taking somebody else's land. They were declaring sovereignty over that which is really theirs. They're this close to resolving this issue in terms, in my opinion, legally, but I'm, I'm talking to legal scholars, so who, what do I know here? Over those areas, we thought we were on the edge of it, and it did not happen for a number of reasons that we won't go into right now. And, and so this still, this land is still in limbo. Here, here's Israel, a long sliver of Israel, and then here's these two pieces. And when Obama used to say, go back to pre-67 boundaries, he meant Israel can't have what they won in 67, and Israel would only be about seven miles wide uh, at, one, at one place. Untenable. They wouldn't be able to defend themselves. That's what's in dispute. And so I urge you, don't use the word West Bank. Let's all, as, as followers of Christ, all of you listening, I encourage you to use Samaria, Judea. And then I encourage us, as, as, as Andrew's already said, don't use settlements, use communities. When the Jews move in there, they're not settling on somebody else's land. They don't, uh, they, they own the land. <laughs> they're, 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 they're just establishing wonderful communities throughout there. Now, those are just some basic, some basic things I want us to understand. Uh, could you, could you I, there's two things that would, would, would make the case for Israel, would it not? San Remo, and then before that, Balfour, Balfour in 1917, and San Remo, in Italy in 1920, wouldn't those have pretty compelling cases for Israel to be able to exercise the, the sovereignty over those areas? Or is that too um, naive? Okay, so yeah, we had, that's right, 1917 Balfour Declaration, which is a, a unilateral declaration by the government of Great Britain. Uh, supported by other countries, but it was a it was a, uh, a declaration. San Remo is a decision made by the Allied powers meeting together in San Remo in 1920, and then you had the mandate, which really was the implementation of those decisions in 1922. Now there are those who argue San Remo legally. Um, it really, really gave sovereignty to the Jewish people. Now, it's not a straightforward argument. Um, I respect very much those, those who make it. I think it's very important. Um, but the Jewish people at that time were just people. They, they couldn't receive sovereignty. They, they couldn't obtain sovereignty by way of this. They were not a party to the to San Remo, they were the beneficiaries of it, but they were still just a people finding their way. Um, th that's that's one point. Um, and, and look, there are a number of other issues. So that's why I think it's it's the, all those three documents taken together, but particularly the mandate which implemented it, which I think laid the basis for when when Israel was ultimately created. Uh, in, to to determine its territory. I'm going to limit myself to one question, and Mario, regretfully, because of time, we need to get to prayer. Uh, just one question, please. And I know it's, well, we're going to need to have Andrew back because we have so many things we need to cover. I want to encourage you all to go to think, T-H-I-N-C dot info and download the book. It's called The Hague Statement of Jurist on Israel-Palestine conflict, and then go to page, I think the most helpful page for me was page six and seven. It just lays it out. I have lots of notes on those pages and then the maps in the in the back, but we've got to get the prayer right away. So I'm gonna stop. I have so many other questions that are boiling over. I'm gonna restrain myself. Mario, it's gonna be hard. Try to try to lasso it in one, one question so we can get right to prayer. Yes. Um Andrew, we, you, I think you know we're also working in, in uh, Latin America, and we're working with several nations, um, Chile being one of them. We're very concerned about the new president. Um, uh, 
there's a legislation already proposed uh, for boycott, divestment, and sanctions uh, on uh, for uh, any contracts with Judea and Samaria. And in our discussions, we are trying to recommend um, to some nations anti-BDS legislation. Is that going to help us if they adopt anti-BDS legislation for there to be a safe haven for Jewish um, um, businesses to be able to continue working um, against the boycotts of nations? Andrew, be sure and define for our listeners. Most of our listeners know but BDS, please define that if some do not know what that's referring to. Okay, so that stands for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. That's the terminology that was used for South Africa. You recall with the apartheid when people boycotted and divested and imposed sanctions. And that's a movement. Uh, it's a civil society movement. There are organizations that and, and, and companies that voluntarily divest from Israel. But what Mario, you're talking about is legislation, which enforces in a way or, or requires, in this case, Chilean companies, I guess, to divest from Israel, would make it illegal for them to have any commercial connection to the occupied territories. It'd be something like that. Now, um, First of all, I think it's it's ineffective anyway. Um, I mean, it's a it's a pity, probably for those Chilean companies, but I can't imagine there's too many having commercial ties to the West Bank. It's more a political uh, thing. The BDS movement really is not hurting Israel, to be quite frank with you. Um, you know, there are things like Ben and Jerry's, and there's you know, it's not nice, but at a macro level, it's not it's not harming. Israel. It's more the political impact, I think, that's important to push back against it. Um, there's not a lot you can do. You know, if the legislature of a country like Chile decides to do that, you can you'd have to look at the opportunities within Chilean constitutional law to challenge the legality of that piece of legislation. That's hard. But, you know, worth looking at. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I, I can read Mario's mind and he's got 18 more questions. And so do I. We are, Mario, we're, we're exercising unusual restraint right now. We are so uh, out of time. Uh, Andrew, there's going to be a part. Sorry, uh, we'll my fault. No, no, no. We need a part two, part three, part four with Andrew Tucker. I want to thank you for staying up the, the night like you are. He's in the Netherlands. And uh, he's he lives in the you live actually in the Hague, do you not? Or do you I, I'm actually outside the Hague, yeah, 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 in a very pretty little part of the of Holland. Well, we haven't been with you for a while over there. We want to come back and hang out with yeah. you again sometime Super. soon. So appreciate what you're doing. Well, with this uh, tremendous overview, uh, it's time for us to go to prayer. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.